0: Hey, I want to say congratulations, family. For those of you who have plodded along, we for eight weeks have decided to read the New Testament, and last week was the eighth week. So no hands raised, like who did what, that's not the point. But that we crossed the finish line after eight weeks of reading the New Testament together. It was a ton of fun. And uh, I tell you what, we're going to do more of this in the future, where we're going to take a segment of the Bible... And we're going to read it together. So look for that again down the road. But uh, for today, I say, woohoo! <laughs> and I loved reading the, 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 the letters of John this week. We finished the John's Gospel this week, his three letters, and then that crazy book of Revelation was this week. And uh, wow, it was, it was stirring to be driving down 680 and listening to dragons and winged creatures with scorpion faces and... All to say, it was great. So today, I want to reflect the first century. And as I listened and soaked in 1 John, what hit me was the repeated emphasis over and over again on loving your brother and sister. And I thought to myself, there must be something wrong here. He's having to say it so much. There must have been some plague of lovelessness afoot. And as I dug into the letter, I did see that John was writing a polemic, a, 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 a treatise against false teaching. And I thought it would be interesting to see if we could uncover the scope of that false teaching inductively by saying, what was he speaking against? Let's do something. Let's read, at the back of your outline, let's read a passage from the letter together out loud. 1 John chapter 3, 11-18. Let's go ahead and read it together. As, uh, as John is is pressing again against this lovelessness problem. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Yes, join me. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So... Don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world... And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion... How can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other, let us show the truth by our actions. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So like a good detective, we read through 1 John and we start seeing these themes rise up. He says several times that antichrists have risen up already. He says that they once were a part of us, but they've gone out from us, and they've shown that they're, they're teaching something different because they've left the teaching. There are three larger themes that Paul is pushing against. One is this idea of who is Jesus, the person of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, we see him uh, refuting the idea that uh, some say that Jesus is not the Christ or the Messiah. Later in chapter 2, Anyone who denies the Father and the Son, so there is some kind of denial of their unique relationship. In chapter four, he says, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh does not have the truth in that person. So there's this constellation of nature of Jesus as being fully human and fully God that was afoot, and he's going after that. Secondly, there's a lot of verses about John saying, "The one who is in the light can't walk in the dark. The one who loves God cannot keep sinning. If you really are one of abiding in Christ, you just have to live righteously. You just can't keep living unrighteously." So there's another theme afoot, where there's a teaching that seemed to suggest some moral uh, moral laxity, some kind of freedom of of licentiousness afoot. So that's there. And finally, as I said, there's this lack of loving brother or sister. I wondered if I could find um, in my studies and present to you the sort of the coherent, complete false teaching out of which those things rose. And I just wanna say that in a short sermon, that's impossible. And when you read one half of an argument, you're never fully sure of all the exact nature of the thing that he's addressing, because we only have one side of the conversation. So I wanna give you one idea simplify it today one idea that I believe was present that was a significant seed of these three maladies that John is addressing one idea and that simple idea is this is that my body and the stuff around us is evil physical stuff ain't really that good It was an idea that the physical world was an entrapping place for the divine spark in the human being and that the goal of of freedom was to free ourselves from body and from materiality to attain a special knowledge that would launch us into the freedom of truth. This was a very Greek idea rooted in Plato's teaching that was present in the atmosphere and was... (laughs) syncretizingly seeping into church teaching. This simple idea that stuff is bad, would you guess, would have such dire consequences. But let's play it out for a moment. If the body is evil, matter is bad, if we're to eschew it, as that beautiful word is, eschew, that's just a word that sounds and feels really great when you say it, eschew. (laughs) Try it. Is you, yeah, bless you. (laughs) Um, If this body is bad, then it would make sense that we'd argue that the God would not put His very being and spirit in a body. So there must be some mistake about the theology that these Christians were teaching—that Jesus was fully God, fully human. There, there must be a problem with that. And so, for example. A contemporary of John is a, was a man named Serinthus who taught particularly this, that Jesus was a good human, born not of a virgin birth, a normal birth. After his baptism, the divine Christ came upon him and uh, an emanation of the true God came upon him and it empowered him from miracles and teaching to unlock the mysteries of the hidden God. And then before he went to the cross, that divine Christ left him. Now that was a teaching of Serenthus, an Egyptian Jew, who began to have a following and disciples. We have no writings of his, but later uh, early fathers like Irenaeus would speak about this teaching that had permeated the church. So it's very possible that Serenthus and his teaching is something being attacked here in John's first letter. There's a famous quote in the early writings of the church. There's a, an anecdote about John b- going into a, an Ephesian bathhouse, and he sees Serinthus in there, and he, and suppo- supposedly, he yells to his disciples, let us flee this place. Serinthus is taking a bath inside, and the roof might fall on him. Anyway, that's just, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. So, This notion of thinking ill about stuff and body and matter can result in an aberration in our very central teaching, which is that the life of our church, the life of Christianity itself, that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Secondly, this notion of sin licentiousness, how would that come from a view that matter is evil? Well, this view that formed itself into various schools of Gnostic thinking saw two responses some who saw that the body as evil uh, pursued paths of extreme asceticism denial of the body but others took this view that if the body is already sort of a polluted dumpster what's another gum wrapper Uh, In other words, if it's already a mess, why put constraint around what we do in the body? It doesn't matter because the real stuff's up here in this realm of spirit and, and idea, which created then a very liberal, very sort of immoral kind of lifestyle rationalized by this philosophy. If that's the case, then you could see John pushing against this notion that it matters what we did in our bodies, that sin's a real deal, and that to abide in Christ is to live as he lived. The third notion, why sin, I mean why matter as being evil and inherently bad, would result in lovelessness, how might that connection work? Well, think of it this way. If the true need of my brother and sister is spiritual enlightenment, what is the good of me contributing to their material story? In fact, aren't I, and look at this subtle rational The rationalization, uh, a rationalization to keep your stuff. Why should I give my stuff to somebody else? That's not what they need anyway. Probably it's only going to make it worse for them. Interesting, isn't it? How a devaluation of stuff could devalue the very stewardship of resources that could be the expression of love called for in community. I'm going to suggest, among many other things, that this idea, this one singular idea, the devaluation of matter and body, was at least in the mix of false teaching that John is responding to with true Christian theology, which I want to repeat for us and see how that makes a difference relative to who we think Jesus is, how we live our lives, and how we love each other. The Judeo-Christian tradition is crystal clear starting with genesis chapter one that when god created the world it was good five times in the chapter after the sixth day god pronounces the world what very good this now will stand as the benchmark of understanding the created order as good Interestingly, in later Gnostic theology, they posit that the God Jehovah, creator of this world, was called a demiurge, a lesser evil God because he created evil matter. And that the true God is an unknowable being far removed from even the Jehovah of the Bible. That's how, that's how crazy that it got. Because they believe that evil was, that matter was evil. Now we also believe that stuff, the world is spoiled, is contaminated with curse and with deterioration. Science can call that the second law of thermodynamics. Everything's running down. But we locate the fault in that in the stewards of this planet, the humans who were given dominion and failed to obey God. Next comes the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus coming fully into a human body is the second place where we find the the theology of Christianity's stamp on the world and the body as fundamentally good. And interestingly, in John's writing, he puts those two things together in John chapter one, where he brings creation and the incarnation right together in the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God god nothing that was made was not made nothing that was made was not made but through him and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten god full of grace and truth so the incarnation the theology of jesus becoming human is the other great stamp upon the goodness of the body and of the world The next thing that we see in the Old and the New Testament is an insistence that God is going to take this spoiled world and save it and rescue it and renew it and make it beautiful again, even better than before. And I say this many times, I'll say it again, not to crumple up this one, throw it away and start over, but he is taking this world and renewing it and remaking it, which stands for another sign of its incredible goodness and value. It's worth saving. The next thing that we see in the New Testament is a clear identification with our bodies as temples of God's living Holy Spirit. And if there's any object in ancient Judaism which marks holiness, it would be the the temple where heaven and earth meet, where God and humans meet. And this becomes the very human body in which God now dwells after what Jesus has done for us. And all of these things tell us uh, that our view, our worldview about bodies And stuff is that it is good, that it is to be valued, prized, that it is to be appreciated and thus stewarded. I mean, this is how it plays out then. Of course, our theology of Jesus as fully human and fully God makes sense when we have our our, our correct theology in place. And secondly, the, the notion that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit is a holy and beautiful thing, I need to use it Right, I need to to treat it as sacred and use it in a holy way is congruent with viewing it that way. We take precious things that are of immense value and we guard them and we use them carefully. We don't fling priceless diamonds around the house to be lost in the corners and the crevices. And it's much easier to throw a dirty spoon in a sink full of dirty dishes than it is to place it there in a pristine sink with nothing else in it, my point being, there is a motivation when we realize our bodies are holiest to treat them and live in a holy way. Finally, there is a call to love when we value the other person in their bodies, in their full selves, as eminently valuable. Even more, though, than this, the pattern of the incarnation of Jesus leaving heaven to become human, becomes for John, and in the New Testament, the pattern of love for us. John will emphasize what's called the new command in John 13, and again in 15 and 17. A new command I give you, said Jesus, love one another. How? As I have loved you. We see this in 1 John chapter 3. He gave himself for us, therefore we ought to lay down our lives for one another, and the pattern is laid out so beautifully in the, the book of Philippians chapter two: The story of Jesus leaving heaven and becoming human. that chapter begins with a call to resist the arrogance of indifference of seeing others as more as less than us or not important. when he says, "Have this mind that was in you, consider the other more important than yourself and he says, "This mind was in Jesus, who, though he existed as God, did not." count equality with God as something to be grasped but emptied himself and he took on the form of human form and emptied himself into the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death death on a cross and so what's the pattern is to see the other to become in form like them to embody yourself in a way that can be given over and received jesus embodies himself to give his body and his blood to the world which we're going to celebrate in just a moment but i'm so struck by the embodied nature of the incarnation and as the pattern for love it leads me to this sentence which is the heart of my whole point today is that love cannot stop at affection or intention it must be embodied into exchange of something graspable seeable tasteable touchable feelable love cannot stop at the place of affection or intention or else it is like trying to send a big photograph on your phone in a text or in an email to somebody and you hit send and you watch the little bar on your phone go voop and then it just stops. Those of you who have smartphones, do you know what I'm talking about? And you look at it and you go, is this going to send? And you wait and you wait. And inevitably you get the little sign that says failure to send. <laughs> this is what love that stops at affection that stops at intention is a failure to send. I dare anyone to think of an example of love that is not ultimately expressed as embodied exchange. The end of love is sharing, and there's a biblical word for that, a Greek word called koinonia. It's one of those Greek words that's risen up to a popular level. We usually translate it fellowship. It means much more than sipping coffee at at the bridge time. Fellowship means this. It means the sharing, substance of sharing, one to another, what we have for each other. This is the way of love marked out by Jesus of which had been lost in the community that John, or at least was in the teaching of the false teachers that was being uh, per- perpetuated into the community to which John is writing. And I simply want to call that simple, super simple idea out that what you have matters, that your bodies matter, that the world is good. Therefore, it calls a different kind of way of being in our bodies and a different kind of way of sharing what we have with each other. Love is the embodied exchange, sacrificially, of what we have for the sake and the need of the other, and it is always that. Here are some common expressions of these old ideas that John is refuting back then, still present today. Ideas that Jesus was a good teacher, but he certainly wasn't God. Very common in more liberal churches, and a view of Jesus in the in the greater world. Separating out the human good Jesus from the divine Jesus is still as prevalent today as ever. And we teach opposite that Jesus was fully. God fully human a mystery that we hold on to as the core of our beliefs as Christians there is a belief out there today that it's more important to save souls than it is to tend to bodies that's a common that is a common idea in certain evangelical circles it doesn't listen the most important thing is just to save their soul and not to tend to their bodies I see that bifurcation and that bifurcation is rooted in this old Gnostic idea Now, granted, sometimes people push that idea in response to the fact that some people never talk about the spirit or the soul or Jesus at all and just feed, and that's a problem, too. Spirit and body are meant to hold together. That is our theology, and they can never be separated on either side of that particular equation. A third manifestation today that we see around this old heresy, Popping up its head is a lack of care for the world, the earth around us, because, oh well, it's going to be burned up. That is a careless idea rooted in wrong thinking, wrong theology. The third is a carelessness about the way that we use our bodies because we presume on this idea that grace is free, that we we don't get to heaven because we do works, and so it gives us subtle license to be loose in the way that we live our lives. And Paul will say in the book of Romans, chapter 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? And his enthusiastic answer was, by no means, may it never be. And finally... There is the disease of hoarding our resources and lack of stewardship of those on behalf of those in need around us because we've lost a robust, concrete sense that love is always embodied exchange. Last thing I'll say this morning is interesting. You might say, Jeff, in refuting the old heretical ideas that spirit was more important than material. Is that really worth talking about today in this age when scientific materialism, that material is all there is and there really is no such thing as the spiritual is the more common worldview of today. Interesting question. All I would say is this, is that the theology of the sacredness and the goodness of stuff speaks into this worldview, modern worldview, just as well, because the result of the modern worldview is the commodification of the body and the things that we have ultimately for selfish ends, without an ultimate theology to say the sacredness of the body and the goodness of the world um, as a call against commodification for self-interest is another way to press into the nerve center of the culture around us today. But this call to love in the way that Jesus loved, to model the pattern of the incarnation, I want to express that in two responses today. The first is that we have Greg and Christy Faust with us today who are our missionaries in Germany, serving the Germans in East Berlin and immigrant communities there. And I've invited them to come and tell some stories of their ministry since they're here with us. And they embody... This idea that love is the exchange, the embodied exchange of real needs, both of spirit and of stuff. And after they come, then we're going to come to the communion table today and remember the incarnation and the embodied gift of Jesus giving his body for us as a call for us to go and do likewise. So, Greg and Christy, come forward. It is a delight to have you guys here with us. Come stand up here and... We uh, go back to Westmont uh, college days together. Well, Christy and I, did
1: you not go to Westmont? No, I didn't go to
0: Westmont. I just have inflated, conflated Westmont yeah. onto you. Yeah, that's but okay. Christy, sure and I, that's all right. Christy and I, Christy and I were. Our son
1: went there, so that's okay. There so, you go.
0: Yeah. So uh, Christy and I were at Westmont together um, yeah, uh, just 10 years ago. Wasn't it about 10 years ago that we were <laughs> in college? And uh, so tell us what you're doing in, in Germany and, and, uh, kind of enflesh the things that we're talking about today okay. with your own story.
1: Yeah, just to repeat this last, last uh, line in this uh, passage, uh, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And I you know how many people have, have heard of, Christ- of people outside in the world complaining that we're not showing and doing enough Christian love. That, that doesn't, that's not a complaint, right? Maybe we talk too much, but we don't show enough. We don't do enough. Um, so we're going to have some slides up here. I think there we go. We are in uh, Germany. That's just very quickly to give you an overview. We're in Berlin, which is very far east, and working among East Germans, but also um, among uh, immigrants and refugees. So, the next slide. Um, We basically do three things. We work with a local church and developing and building up that church, because that's God's mission station, just like you are, God's mission station here. Secondly, we reach out to refugees and East Germans. East Germans, there's hardly any Christians where we are, so there's a huge need for the re-evangelization of of East Germany and Germany in general. But also to these these millions of immigrants that have come into Germany from the Middle East, places that are hard to reach. And lastly, we're working towards planting eventually a church that incorporates these refugees and an international church. So um, a lot of our work is with refugees, and that's what we're just going to focus on a little bit if you'll show the next um, slide. These are people that have come a long way, and they've endured great hardship. The stories that we hear are tremendous, and uh, so just engaging people, listening to them, uh, meeting their practical needs is super important, and it shows Jesus to them. Many have said, I met Jesus along the way, along this way through different countries across borders when somebody gave me a glass of water, when somebody gave me some clothing. And they, they eventually understood that as Jesus. Mm. Um, so this is a large part of our ministry. Um, the next picture, we the place where we often meet people is in like cafes. And this is a cafe just a, a, a block away from our apartment. Café without borders, Café ohne Grenzen, and there we Meet up with all kinds of people. You can see them in the next picture: um, kids, parents, all different types of places they're coming from—Iran, uh, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, etc. Um, lots of people. And Chris is going to share a little story about one of the ladies we meet with.
2: Right. So with Muslims, um, generally the. But the people have, well, what the studies show is you you just you can't just open up the Bible and give it to them, and then you talk about it, and boom, they're convinced. <clears throat> it's more relationship. And so, next slide. This is my friend Sakar, my, um, and she's um, a nurse from Iraq, and she's Kurdish, and she has three little boys. And the Lord paired me up with her. We do Zumba together. And um, this is a bookmark that um, I helped... We made for his class, his first grade class, all the names of the kids in Arabic, and we sort of needed to do something to compensate because he's got extra energy and he's not all the greatest, you know, little German boy. And um, so I've gone to the doctor with her. I've um, done a lot of hands-on things with her. And the next slide, eaten with them too, and it's a big deal, you know, when you break bread with somebody. So um, yeah, that's been my privilege.
1: So, we spend a lot of time around meals and in these, those you saw a picture of there, there's kind of like container homes. So, we visit them in their container homes as well. Um, and then, uh, just generally, so here's an, another picture. If you'll move up there, there's a friend. I'm not going to say his name. Um, I'm not sure if this is going on the internet or not. Okay, yeah. But, anyways, he's a, he's a friend. Now, we've known him a couple of years. Uh, he studied philosophy. And he was acquainted with various religious thought and so forth. Pretty open, and in the past uh, year and a half, he's come to really believe in Jesus. And uh, a lot of that happened. Uh, meals at home, Christy and him are cooking together. Um, and then, if you'll see in the next slide, um, that ultimately he was baptized just a few months ago. And um, and he is on fire uh, for Jesus. And because of that, he is wants to go. We were able to send him to a. a kind of a quickie Bible school type of thing, introduction. And he wants to continue that now for three years and become a pastor serving uh, his people and among us and with us in Berlin. So he's actually somebody that... What's that? He's actually somebody that we are raising support for to support this Bible school. So if you're interested in supporting him in that, please get a hold of us and you can contribute to that, some action. (laughs) Right.
2: And supporting means maybe like... I don't know, four or five hundred for the semester, it's not much, but um, what I wanted to just underscore too is that we are your hands and feet, and you give a little bit to the covenant, to the denomination, and this is what you pay for. And he went to a conference, and we were able to take him pay for the conference because of covenant money, so we are really grateful to you.
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> fantastic. Thank you. Nice day.
0: So I have asked if uh, Greg would stay with me and we're going to serve communion together and we turn our thoughts and hearts now to the culmination of our service, which is coming here to the table that Jesus has set for us. And as we come into communion today, we're gonna do something different today. Often we come forward to receive. Today we have thought we are gonna just stay. We wanna serve you. We wanna bring the elements to you and just reflect on the huge mystery of the incarnation of Jesus who came and gave himself for us, leaving the riches of heaven to become impoverished and to enter into death on our behalf. This practice of communion is something that we do in this church once a month on the first Sunday. If you're visiting today and you're, you're wondering like, okay, what's, what's about to happen? In the, in the early church, there were great rumors about this love feast. People thought they were doing strange things. So it's always good to explain ourselves if you're a visitor, not to assume. Little piece of bread, we're gonna pass out, a little cup of juice. But it's way more than a little cup of b- juice and bread. These beautiful physical symbols of the earth carry with them for us a powerful grace, not just a memory of Jesus, but that he meets us in this moment and communicates his love and grace, communicates the truth of his forgiveness, communicates the truth of his whole life, communicates it to us beyond just mental it's a direct encounter with him through this physical means. So for us, it's a powerful sacred moment that we look forward to. The invitation is for all to receive, but I love to give meaning to the receiving of it. It means it is a way to take the bread and the juice is a way of saying out loud with your body, Jesus, I am actually believing you're real, and I'm giving witness to the fact that I've invited you into my interior, which we do when we eat. And that simply means, Jesus, I have said somewhere along the way, you are the one that I want to follow. You're the one that I'm trusting to forgive my sin. And if you've never said that, I can think of no more beautiful morning when we're remembering what he has done for us to say, you did that for me, Jesus, I'll, I'll give you my life if you're not ready, though, or you don't fully understand that, there is no pressure for you to act in other, any other way than just being yourself. Be congruent with where you are today. I'd like to ask if there would be four people, according to our custom, and I haven't prepared this ahead of time because I think anybody who is breathing in this room can do this, to come forward, two to Greg's right, two to my left, to be the ones that will pass these plates out. Passing the plates is simply like playing slow-motion frisbee. You, you simply put a plate on a row, and it shows up on the other side, and you grab it, and you, you stick it in the next one or so. Would there, be, would there be four of you that would like to help Greg and I serve? Ken, come forward. Lisa's coming forward. There's two already. Would there be two more that would come? Tom, is that? Uh, yeah, good. That would come. That would be great. Linda, do you want to come? Linda, okay. Gary, I couldn't see you back there. Gary, come forward. Linda Kaiser comes forward. We're gonna sit with a song. Be Thou My Vision is a song that says, Lord, will your life be like mine? Will your, the way that you loved, may it be the way that we love. May we not just look at what you've done, but incorporate you into the way we live. We're gonna sing this song as we
1: prepare then to take the bread and the cup today. Let's prepare.